I mean, you know how many poor people the mob is hurt by extortion, um, you know, going into the pizza places saying you, you got to pay me 20% by selling fentanyl and heroin and cocaine to addicting people, killing people with that. The American people have been victimized by organized crime for almost 100 years. And that's why I wrote this book. They're not what you see in the movies and TV. My guest today is Bill O'Reilly. Bill's success in broadcasting and publishing is unmatched. The iconic anchor of the O'Reilly Factor, he led the program to the status of the highest rated cable news broadcast in the nation for 16 consecutive years. He hosts the O'Reilly Update, heard weekdays on more than 225 radio stations across the country and streamed on the Pandora app. In addition, he has authored 16 16 number one ranked nonfiction books, including the historical killing series, the best-selling nonfiction series of all time with nearly 18 million books in print. I recently sat down with Bill to talk about his latest book, a national bestseller, Killing the Mob, The Fight Against Organized Crime in America. Bill O'Reilly, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Charles, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Bill, you really are the king of all media. You are on TV, you're number one there. You have a, a boatload of books that become national bestsellers. What don't you do? Well, we try to spread the word uh, in three areas. TV, uh, for many years I uh, did very well on the Fox News Channel. Now I run my own news operation. Well, you can find us on BillOReilly.com, and that's very successful. Then we do radio, syndicated radio program every day, like the Paul Harvey broadcast of uh, years gone by. Yep, I, I... 15-minute broadcast, 300 stations. And then I am the uh, most successful nonfiction book writer of all time, which is shocking to me. I don't know how that happened. 18 million copies of my books in print including 16 number one bestsellers with the Killing series and others. Bill, I want to say, man, I read a lot. Reading's my hobby. I grew up as a kid. I, my kids still make fun of me that I spent most of my time in Brooklyn on Coney Island Avenue and Avenue V in the library. That was, that was my favorite. And I read your book, your latest book, right, Killing the Mob, The Fight Against Organized Crime in America. And I want to tell you, I thought I knew a lot about the mob. The book had me every single page. Well, we try to do, we try to make it fun to read, but you learn something on every page, as you pointed out, and that takes a lot of research. And we do six months of research before we write anything in the killing series. So we're, uh, we're on it. And uh, I understand, I believe what folks, you know, want to know about. And because that's really what I want to know about. It was a blast writing Killing the Mob because I didn't know any of this stuff. We just found it out. And so that's the successful formula that we have. I like also the way you went deep, and we'll get into this in just a minute, but the way you went deep into certain details of what uh, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, what Clyde, what Bonnie looked like and how she was only 4'10 or 4'11 and her last scream, a guttural scream when she was killed. You just make it, it, it just, it, let me put it this way, it jumped off the page. It really did. I have to say that. Well, we want to put the reader there. That's my 
Um, Martin Dugard, my co-author, does the research, funnels to me. And then I want to put the reader right there as Bonnie and Clyde are being executed. One of the interesting things that we found out um, is that the FBI is formed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president, to catch these bank robbers who had just run a wild in the Midwest, the South, and the Upper Midwest. But it wasn't come out with your hands up. J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director from the beginning, basically told his guys, you just get rid of them. We don't want to see them again. So the bank robbers were assassinated by the FBI. There wasn't any um, attempt, much of an attempt to capture them. Yeah. So before we even start talking about this book, I want to ask you, because I always check this out. Anytime I see a, a, a book by someone I'm going to be interviewing, I look at the dedication. So this book is dedicated to my late father and mother who always obeyed the law and passed that dedication on to their children. Tell me about that. Well, my father uh, lived near you um, on West Street in Brooklyn. My grandfather was NYPD um, during the Depression. He was a hero at, uh, at the Muse battle in World War I. Never talked about it. And big Brooklyn family, Irish family. Um, my people came over from County Cabin in the 1860s, uh, two twin 16-year-old boys. Um, we were thrown off our land in County Cabin by the British Crown. And they came over without a mom or dad, and they started the O'Reilly's in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, because of my grandfather's job, so law and order was pretty important to the O'Reilly's. And I, you know, when you're re-killing the mob, you'll get a sense that I don't like these people. And that's true. Criminals are not my favorites. Well, what you do, what you do, what I really liked also, is you don't glamorize anything. You go right to the point and show That's how right. vicious they were, especially we'll get later on into the juice man. Oi, you give uh, pretty graphic details how he's uh, butchered up uh, at the end. Um, right. Which man are you talking about now? Uh, the juice. It was the juice man. Um, let me get the, uh, I think his name was Jackson where he's taken and slaughtered. Uh, he was, he was really heavy. so many of them, Charles. I, <laughs> he was 400 pounds, and he couldn't run, and they caught him. Okay, this is the gay guy, right? Uh, hang on a I second. I think this is the guy you're talking about. Hang on. Um, so there, there was a, what people, and this is fascinating. So the mob controlled the gay bars in New York City in the 60s and 70s. And to this day, they have a piece of that. And it was a mafioso who was gay. Now, that you couldn't do if you were in organized crime. You could not be gay. And they found out that he was. And they killed him in a, in a very unpleasant way. And I put that story in just to show you that these people, you know, they weren't rational, these criminals. They were violent, and the violence pretty much overtook them. There's no reason why they should have killed this guy. He didn't inform on the mob or anything like that. He was just gay. Yeah, he's kind of butchered up. There's another guy. Uh, he was, I, I don't think, I, I know what that guy you're talking about. I just saw him. Here, the juice man. Uh, 350-pound juice man, uh, William Action Jackson. 
And what was the context of the story you're uh, referring to? Okay, so he was found breaking into homes of men who fall behind on their debts and then raping their wives as a reminder to pay up. He's arrested in the summer right. of 61 while attempting to unload stolen electrical appliances in a warehouse. His five accomplices all managed to flee, but Jackson is too heavy to run. While in custody, the debt collector is asked to become a federal informant, and he doesn't. However, the mob doesn't trust him. So uh, Bobby Kennedy actually listens in to this uh, recording. Okay, and now I got it. And and the recording is so grisly wow. that Kennedy almost gets sick to his stomach. The giant man. So, the giant man is stripped. Let me just read this because this is this. Anyone who wants to glamorize the life of a mafioso, read this part. The giant man is stripped. His hands and feet are bound with rope. A meat hook is inserted into his rectum. His kneecaps are broken with a baseball bat. Then his ribs. A sharp object is shoved into one ear, poking a hole in the drum. An electrical prod is then shoved into his genitals. He still refuses to confess. So his brutalized use a blowtorch to incinerate his penis. Only then is he taken off the meat hook. The murderers leave the big man bound to bleed to death, a passing that does not take place for three long days. And remember, he didn't do anything. Right. This guy didn't do anything. Right, right. He didn't inform. Um, and, the, and the way we got that description was that the feds, Bobby Kennedy, they had that place wired where he was killed. Um, and that was a very effective tool that the federal government finally brought to bear against organized crime. As the technology got better, they could surveil better. And that's what led to John Gotti uh, getting finally convicted. But it's a fascinating evolution from the 1930s when J. Edgar Hoover wouldn't investigate the mafia. He was okay with taking down a bank robbers, but no mafia for him. Um, and then from 46 after World War II to 61, the mob became the most powerful entity in the United States by far. Yeah, uh, amazing how they infiltrated all levels of politics Everything. right up to the thing. Right. So before we get into the book, why, I think this is what, your 10th book in the Killing series? Yes, 10th one. Why the mob? Well, it was, there was a gap. So if you, if you read the Killing books, we take you from uh, 1775, before the Revolutionary War began, all the way up to um, modern times with killing Reagan, okay? But there's this gap between 1946, right after World War II, and killing Kennedy when he got assassinated in 63. I wanted to fill that gap in. So my um, goal on writing all of these books is that you'll have a library of American history that will explain to you the reality of your country, which today, Charles, you really need with the massive amount of propaganda coming at the American people, saying things that are untrue about the United States. You need to be able to have enough information to counter that, tell your children, tell your friends, no, this is what really happened. So I had to fill that gap and the best way to do it in my opinion, was to find who the power was in the United States that period of time. Dwight Eisenhower was president after Truman, then Kennedy takes over. But they weren't the most powerful people. 
Lucky Luciano, Vito Genovese, they were the most powerful people. Right. They controlled virtually everything. And, and you know, that brings you up to, um, to, to J. Edgar Hoover. So most people know J. Edgar Hoover as the person that created the FBI that really made it a household name. Uh, but most people don't know a lot of the stuff that you put in this book is how beholden or you insinuate, I don't know if you actually come out and say, how, I guess the recordings uh, that, you, that, you, uh, that you transcribed here, that, some, that how J. Edgar Hoover was in the debt of the mafia. Well, they had something on them. The, the break that we got in writing Killing the Mob came from our discovery of Lucky Luciano's personal papers. We found that. Now, Luciano made no secret that he was writing everything down, and he did actually write a book. But we got all the source material, and in that material was the allegation that the mob had compromising information about J. Edgar Hoover. Didn't say what. And Dugard and I couldn't find out exactly what it was. But we narrowed it down to two areas. J. Edgar Hoover liked the ponies. He was a gambler. All right? He's also gay. So it had to be one of those two things. The mob had acquired pictures or debts or something, okay, that would have destroyed Hoover's career. And in return, Hoover didn't investigate the mafia because he didn't want that exposed. Ironically, that's the same game Hoover was playing by basically recording all the politicians, finding out about their affairs, about what they do in private, and then assembling that information in case Hoover needed it, in case somebody was giving him a hard time. Hoover did that. The same thing happened to him. Yeah, you know, you, you, you just mentioned that about um, Hoover and the mob. Hoover never even acknowledged the existence I know. of the mafia. Crazy. Crazy. So what do you think that... And all those resources... What do you think all that is... All those resources the federal government had to fight crime went to waste because Hoover wouldn't look into the five families in New York, Giancana in Chicago... Marcello in New Orleans, Traficante in, in Tampa. They all existed and ran wild. Hoover knew it, and he just wouldn't investigate it. So your thinking is, is that they had him either on the ponies or his, uh, his lifestyle. Right. And then they, then they and they, because, it, you know, you bring up in the, in the book here about the, uh, the Bureau of Narco Narcotics. They knew about it. They were basically grandstanding and talking about the mafia, where Hoover is not only silent, he goes out of his way to say no such thing exists. Even in the, he had a, I think he had to finally disclose it when it came out on one of the, uh, one of the wiretaps. Is that right? Yes. Bobby Kennedy um, got enough information and put it out publicly on Jimmy Hoffa. That was the real exposition that embarrassed Hoover. But when we went in to examine the FBI um, files. There's nothing in there. They, they didn't have anything in there. You know, the break that I got on the Killing Kennedy book about the assassination of JFK was that I got the FBI primary files from the FBI people on the scene in Dallas. I got to see them. They're not public. 
That's why I could put together that story and tell my readers, hey, this is what happened to JFK. When we did the same thing with the mob, <laughs> we got the FBI files, nothing in there, Charles. It was blank. It's crazy. No, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was reading uh, 1956, Hoover finally acknowledges, and then they go back to 1953 in their whole rewriting of history, oh, how he knew it earlier that he acknowledged the mob. Just blatantly yeah, lied. Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, amazing, man. Just absolutely amazing. So when you read this book, how do you want the reader to walk away? Because I'll tell you how I felt when I walked away from this. But what was your aim as an author, as someone? I shouldn't say as an author because you're really, you, you're really through the 40-plus years of being a, a journalist and being extremely successful, you know how to tap into what's on people's minds. You want yeah, to be. I'm, I'm reporting history, is what I'm doing. Yeah, you're doing something else. So, what Bill, I want people to take away. Bill, Bill, what Bill, I want people Bill, to take away. One second, Bill. One second. Bill, in all fairness to you, not in fairness, but in really, you're being modest. You and other people of your stature, you're successful in what you do is because you're able to tap in what's front of mind for most people. You'd agree with that, right? Yeah, because I'm a. I, I mean. I'm one of the regular folks. I, that's who my friends are. That's I was brought up in Levittown. I mean, that, that's who I write for. Now, I'm not some snobby Manhattan, Georgetown, um, L.A. guy. I, I don't care about that. But you asked a very good question. You said, what do, what do I want the reader to take away from? I want you to know, after you're finished reading The Mob, how evil these people actually were. Because the movies and TV shows have distorted that. So these actors like Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway and Bonnie and Clyde and uh, Al Pacino and Marlon Brando and The Godfather, Denzel Washington and American Gangster, Gandolfini and The Sopranos, they're so talented, they're so charismatic that even though you're watching them do bad things, you kind of feel empathy for them because of the they're so charismatic. No, these were the worst they hurt people and kill people for money. That's what they do to this day. That's what they've always done. Al Capone is the worst, all right? So when you're finished reading Killing a Mob, because we don't do any of that glamorization, you'll know how bad they are. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. <laughs> you hear that? That's what turkeys sound like. You know what else sounds like turkeys? This. There's a lot of value there. How do you see that? Yeah, you really have to break it up into the sections of healthcare. Not surprising when the 21st annual Trust Barometer, published by Edelman Research, shows that more Americans distrust institutions like the media, government, and business than ever before. That's why podcasts like The Charles Mizrahi Show have taken off like a moonshot. Because, as Edelman reports, people are craving facts, real facts, not the whitewashed mumbo jumbo cooked up by the financial media. So if you want straight-up facts on where the real money is made in stocks, and you want it served up in a way that's fun, simple to follow, and profitable, stop listening to the turkeys and listen to America's number one alpha investor, Charles Mizrahi, and how he helped an American patriot you know well make more money in two weeks than most investors make in two years. For more details, go to investingpatriots.com. That's investingpatriots, all one word, dot com. I guarantee... You'll be glad you did. 
So why is it? Why is it that I love watching The Godfather? I love Martin Scorsese, uh, uh, Goodfellas, Casino. I didn't like his last movie, The Irish Mob or The Irishman or something. It was I thought it was terrible. But uh, uh, Goodfellas, what a movie. Why do I like that? Because of the actors. The actors are so good. And you, they draw you in to the drama that's taking place. And Scorsese and Coppola, these guys, they know that world. And they keep it moving um, so you don't get bored by it. And the storylines are compelling. You don't know what's going to happen next. It's cops and robbers, essentially. So I understand. But I felt that there had to be one book, a history book, that really told the truth about organized crime in America. And Killing the Mob is that book. You know, it's also, you touch on in the book as well, the economic powerhouse that they were in terms of controlling uh, Las Vegas in terms of controlling so many poor, so many parts of the economy, and I don't mean controlling, I shouldn't say controlling, but monopolizing by sheer force, threat, and with an army that cost the American people billions of dollars. Sure. Well, Al Capone set the template, all right? So what he did in Chicago, controlling the bootleg alcohol during Prohibition, he made, in today's money, billions of dollars. All right. Back then it was millions of dollars and he controlled an entire city and state because he bribed everybody. Everybody was on his pad. All right. And he walked around and they finally got him because he spent so much money. And when he filed a tax return, it, it said he didn't make any money and they were able to get him and convict him. He went to Alcatraz and I was the end of Al Capone. But organized crime, they took from him and they said, you know what, we can do that on a national level. What he did in Chicago, we can do everywhere. And we'll divide up the territory, but we'll all kind of cooperate. That's the mob, the mafia. So there was a meeting in 46 in Havana because organized crime owned Cuba. They bought Batista, which is one of the reasons that Castro was able to take over that country because Batista was so corrupt. There's a big, big meeting, and all the mob guys went. And Luciano was the big godfather. But in that meeting, Vito Genovese said, we're going to change. We're going to sell narcotics. Luci Luciano didn't want to do that because just like the godfather, the movie, where Don Corleone says, no, we're not going to get into that business, that's what Luciano said. But Vito Genovese won that. And today, 80% of the mob's money, which are billions of dollars, come from the distribution of narcotics. So through, you know, it seems that the, the mafia throughout the last hundred years was a institution that continued to learn and get smarter. It adapts. I don't know about getting smarter. You know, one of the interesting things, Charles, about killing the mob, only one person in the whole book doesn't get killed or put into prison forever. Only one. Hold on a second. That's Hold on. Sidney Korshak. I was I was going to try to guess it right, but it you had everyone and you and, and he wasn't a mob guy. Yeah, he was a lawyer. He was the lawyer. Yeah. But all of the others get what they deserved, and that shows you you're going to go into this. You're not going to come out of it. Share with us because I think my listeners would love this. Lucky Luciano. 
had everything, and he dies destitute. His friends wouldn't even give him money. So Lucky Luciano is buried in Queens. Did you know that? No, nope, I did not know that. Yeah, St. John's Cemetery. So Luciano was an early 30s guy, a thug, and he built up his power in New York, all right, so much so that he had a personal relationship with Governor Thomas Dewey, and Luciano alleges he paid Dewey hundreds of thousands of dollars. It didn't help. Luciano was convicted finally in New York and went upstate to a state penitentiary. But in the penitentiary, he still ran the mob. Now, during World War II, and I didn't know this, even though I wrote a book called Killing Patton, I thought I knew everything about Patton. I didn't know this. After the Nazi general Rommel was defeated in North Africa, Eisenhower and FDR told Patton, you have to invade Europe. And we want you to go through Sicily. Well, who controls Sicily? The mafia for centuries controlled Sicily. Germans were there. A deal was made with Lucky Luciano. Okay, through intermediaries that the mafia in Sicily would practice sabotage on the Germans and provide intel to Patton on where he should land the Third Army, which the mafia did. In return, FDR agreed to take a whole bunch of gentlemen from Sicily into the United States in 1946. And they were all mob guys. Now, Luciano, because he cooperated with the U.S. government and he helped on the docks because the mob controlled the Teamsters and he rooted out German saboteurs and all of that, he got out of prison. But they deported him. The government double-crossed Lucky Luciano and immediately sent him over to Italy, where he didn't want to be. All right. So Luciano goes to Cuba and then he assembles all the U.S. mob guys, knowing he couldn't come back to the USA. Luciano could not come back or to put him right back in prison. But once Vito Genovese took over as the primary godfather, Luciano lost all his power. And as you said, he's broke, didn't have any money, didn't have anywhere to go, and he dies. And he's buried in Queens. He, I just found it shocking. He asks all his friends for money, and they don't give him a nickel. Nothing. Yeah. So, you know, uh, most of these, I think you said all of them, they, they die. Some of them terrible deaths. Some, I don't think, is anyone who dies in his bed, uh, other than one of the mafia guys? Uh, well, Luciano did in, in a sense that, but he, he died homeless. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's like, and they have a... He didn't have anywhere to go. He didn't want to go back to Naples where his people were. Um, but no, the rest of them got, even Giancana, who was as powerful Whoa. as they come, they assassinated him in his kitchen. Yeah. Um, so, again, you get involved with this stuff, you're not going to get out of it. How come, and I'm from Brooklyn, there wasn't much about John Gotti. And in, fact, and in fact, I didn't see anything about John Gotti. Because he's a punk. He didn't rise to the others. Um, John Gotti was basically a mobster who controlled a small section of Brooklyn and Queens. And he strutted around, you know, everybody in the city knew him, the Dapper Don, the Teflon Don. His people bribed the juries. He always was acquitted, but they got him um, because of the RICO laws. That was the turning point. Once the technology 
developed so that the federal government could tap you anywhere. Then organized crime guys started getting like this. But essentially, John Gotti was a punk, a shakedown artist. You know, he wasn't at the level of the guys that we write about. Like a Giancano. He wasn't a mastermind. He wasn't a, a landscape right. which could put together that, Vegas. That kind of power. Right. Right. So he was like, he was, these were like, and I just use this totally as an example, No, like the Steve Jobs of this world. That's what some of these guys say. They create amazing, amazing empires. Uh, illegal, all this thing, yes. but th it's it's brilliant how they come and take over uh, Vegas or create Vegas, that great Las Vegas. Well, that was Meyer Lansky, a Jewish gangster who made an alliance with the Sicilians. And Meyer Lansky was a brilliant financier. Um, and he was ex expertly played uh, in The Godfather by Lee Strasberg. So Lansky basically told Luciano, look, we can have our own city. We have our own country, Cuba, but it's not in the USA. We can have our own city. So I'm going to send my pal Benjamin Siegel, Bugsy Siegel, out. We're going to take money from the Teamsters Pension Fund, which is what the mob did all the time. We're going to build a casino called the Flamingo Hotel, and we're going to take over Nevada, which they did, which they did, okay? But in the meantime... Bugsy Siegel started skimming money from Lansky and the mob and sending it through his girlfriend to Switzerland, his girlfriend, the notorious Virginia Hill. And then Bugsy gets assassinated in L.A. And we walk you through that assassination. Oh. All of the assassinations, we put you there. You see yeah, exactly yeah, what happened. Pretty, pretty graphic where he gets shot, which which bullet killed yeah. him. And they never found out who who uh, who assassinated him. The L.A. cops didn't even look. They didn't even look. At that point in history, they weren't going to mess with Giancana. They knew that hit came from the East Coast. They weren't going to get involved. So, you know, you mentioned Lansky and Double Cross uh, during, I'm sure you know this, 1947, 48, when Israel was struggling about to become a state. The Teamsters were allowing a lot of guns and everything marking the containers as as agriculture so it was getting to israel and then when lansky did as many years after the state when he was running he applied to uh, the right of return to be a citizen of the state of israel and the israeli government said no yeah because harry truman said no that was it they turned him down that that fix was in real low um um and then eisenhower upheld what Truman did. Truman is an interesting guy because Truman knew before most other people what really was happening on the bigger picture scale. All right. They had a little list and, you know, Eisenhower knew, certainly JFK knew because he wouldn't have been president without organized crime. They rigged the vote in Cook County, that's Chicago, to go for Kennedy. And he won Illinois when he really didn't win Illinois. Richard Nixon do, knew that, but chose not to make a big deal out of it for other reasons. Um, so, you know, when I wrote The Mob, I, I said to you, uh, Charles, that this is really fun to write. It really was. Because you know all these people, you know the names, Frank Sinatra, Desi Arnaz. I mean, oh, all the movie stars, oh, the, way, that, the rock people. The Desi Arnaz story, I don't think... Tell me that again, because I don't I don't I'm not going to tell you. All right. I'm not going to tell you because I, the Desi Arnaz story is never been told 
Nobody knows it. It's in Killing the Mob. That's Lucille Ball's husband. I don't tell it because I want people to buy the book. <laughs> it's worth your 20 bucks just for the Desi Arnaz story, Charles. And you know well, it because you read it. I looked at it. I read it twice. I said, wait, Desi Arnaz? I thought maybe it was some other Desi Arnaz. But then you, you Desi right, Lou Productions, the Tim. whole thing. Wow. He came pretty close. My goodness. Yeah. My goodness. And and how well known? Well, let me ask you, what did you learn about Frank Sinatra? He was up to his eyebrows, the mob. He loved it. He wanted to be a mafioso. Um, whenever they uh, called, he came running. They got him out of his contract as a young singer in the big band era. He didn't want to do it anymore. The mob visited the band leader and said, I think Frank's going to retire. Frank retired. The mob got him from here to eternity where he won his Academy Award. Uh, he played all the mob hotels. I mean, he was like that with all of them. He loved them. Well, what I found, you know, by the way, you, he has, you have a great line in there. Um, uh, it's not your line. You, you got it where he said, I'd rather be Don of a mafia family than president of the United States. Yeah. Now, Frank was really one of the boys, as they say. Wow. What, what do you think drove him to that? What, it was it was paying back favors or he really wanted to be a mobster? I, I, I don't think Frank Sinatra had a moral bone in his body. You know, we tell that Marilyn Monroe story at Lake Tahoe. I almost didn't put that in. So disturbing. Um, I, I think he was just a sociopath and a narcissist. And, you know, that kind of evil seeks other evil. That's my analysis of Frank Sinatra. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, you, you, Desi Arnaz, you totally threw me for a loop with that. Frank Sinatra, I was like, wow, this is Frank Sinatra. And I don't want to give away all your, the, all, the whole book, because this is another part that's worth it. How close Frank Sinatra came to being, to wearing cement shoes. If it wasn't for one person saying, I like his music when I make love to one of the women. <laughs> they didn't, right. they didn't, it, it's just and that was Gene Connor. Yeah, it, it just that was Gene Connor. Yeah. How bothered were you uh, as you learned? And I don't think you know you you really dig deep into this. How how up to their eyeballs the Kennedys were with the mob? It wasn't the brothers JFK and RFK. It was the father. So Joseph Kennedy, the patriarch of the Kennedy family. He had associations with organized crime, business associations. He wasn't a mobster. There's a myth that he ran bootlegged alcohol. He didn't. What he did was he controlled all of the wine that went to the Catholic masses all across the country. You imagine what a lucrative franchise that was? During, during Prohibition. That was Joe Kennedy. During Prohibition. Yeah. Because <laughs> they had an exemption. Right. They could use wine at mass. And Kennedy controlled that. So he wasn't a bootlegger. But he knew, I mean, he'd dine with them. He'd stay at the Fountain Blue Hotel, notorious mob hotel in Miami Beach. Uh, and, and then he made deals. Look, you help us out, get Jack elected, and, you know, we'll do you a favor. But JFK himself, he didn't get involved with any of that. Um, he knew, and particularly because he shared a mistress with Sam Giancana, Judith Exner Campbell, tawdry story. Bobby went against his father and his brother to some extent, and he was the one, the only one, who really went after the mob with a ferocity 
never before seen in this country. He did more damage, Bobby Kennedy, to organized crime than any other human being on the face yeah, of the earth. That's and that's a large part of my book. If you had to find a hero in the story, it would be RFK, huh? Yeah, no doubt about it. He, he risked upsetting his, his father was a god. Uh, uh, he upset the apple cart in a huge way. Uh, and what was it, morals? Or just, just his tough Irish upbringing to just be a winner? Um, I talked a lot to Bobby Kennedy Jr. about that. And what I walked away with, and I'm not going to quote him, but I walked away with the fact that Bobby Kennedy didn't really like his father very much. That his father favored Joe and Jack, the two older boys. And Bobby got short-shifted. So this is a little payback. That's what I came away with. Really? So he, he was willing to undo, because look, everything was set up uh, with, uh, without the mob. He could not have won Illinois. And uh, JFK has a deal. He's not going to go after the mob, sends messages back and forth. And Robbie, Robert just goes right after him. He's with, with tenacity. And, and he stands up. He stands up to Jade Gahuva, which was not an easy thing to do. No, he uh, he wouldn't let Hoover get in the way, and he went after Hoffa primarily. And he, you know, that was an amazing. And that's when the media first got involved. When that got real personal, then finally the media turned around and started to report a little bit about it. What would you say the most tragic figure in this whole book is? The American people. I mean, you know how many poor people the mob is hurt by extortion. Um, you know, going into the pizza places saying you, you got to pay me 20% by selling fentanyl and heroin and cocaine to addicting people, killing people with that. The American people have been victimized by organized crime for almost 100 years. And that's why I wrote this book. They're not what you see in the movies and TV. Bill O'Reilly, thanks for being on the show, man. The name of the book is Killing the Mob, The Fight Against Organized Crime in America. As Bill said, it's worth the 20 bucks just to hear and read about the Desi Arnaz story. That's it. Was that, did, that, did that appear anywhere other than this book? Not that I know of. Wow, crazy, huh? That really is a crazy one. All right, Bill, thanks so much, man. Good to have me in, Charles. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.